those of you who haven't been here very often might not know this, but this is a church that tends to try to take the Bible fairly seriously. Don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, when Pastor Steve was announcing the things that we're going to be doing this year, in fact, one of the courses that they're going to be doing on, on Tuesdays is going to be like an in-depth study on how to understand your Bible. So we tend to take the Bible very seriously here. Now, I say that because churches that take the Bible very seriously get a very bad rap in the world. Have you noticed that too? I was reading CBC this morning about a couple of preachers in Hamilton, Ontario, who are now uh, going up and down the streets, preaching to people and talking about how terrible it is if women wear jeans. Um, and that's what people think of when they think of churches who, that take the Bible fairly seriously. Kind of scoldy, kind of mean, kind of looking to make people less joyful and unhappy. And I mean, it's not actually a new thing. H.L. Uh, Mencken, a journalist in the 20th century, uh, coined this thing, and he was talking about Puritanism, but it could be applied to almost any group of people that uh, take Christian, Christianity and the Bible seriously. He calls Puritanism the haunting fear that someone, somewhere, may be happy. And it's funny, but I mean, that's what people tend to think about when we, when we say we take the Bible pretty seriously. They see the Bible, and especially the laws of God in the first five books of the Old Testament, as just rules. Rules, does, and not just any kind of rules. Kind of, well, old-fashioned, restricting rules designed to make you less happy, to control you, to keep you from being happy. And yet the Bible says that the word of God is there for your joy. I'll, I'll get into it later, but there's actually parts of the Bible that say that the law of the Lord makes the heart glad. Yet so often people think that when we take the Bible seriously and when we spend our time reading the Bible and looking deeply into it, we're going to become, well, the kind of people who wear suits and then get very serious all the time. I remember reading these little Jack Chick tracts. I don't know if you've ever seen them before. Uh, the funny thing for me is that every time somebody became a believer, they stopped wearing regular clothes and changed into a suit. Every single time. And that's, that's the view people have about what it is to take the Bible seriously in the world. And yet, the Bible says that it's written for your joy. So there's something wrong here. You, you see that. I'm not just making this up. You, you, do, you do get this, right? Nod, if you, if you agree. Actually, nod anyway, it makes me feel better. And this isn't a new thing, though. The, the way that people react to the Bible, well, it does have some truth to it. Let's face it. If I read the Bible, I see things about myself that I don't like. And if I read the Bible properly, I see God as who he really is. And you know those songs that we sang earlier? You know, some people might think that those are over the top. You know, 10,000 reasons. That's an understatement. 
A very gross understatement, in fact. I mean, the Bible tells us that for all eternity, we'll be, preaching, we'll be praising God for all eternity, and we'll be coming up with new things to praise the Lord for, because we're never going to reach the end of the amazing things that he is. 10,000 reasons? Yeah, that's a low that number. So the problem is that the Bible does do things in our lives that can cause us to feel bad about ourselves. And yet this is meant for our joy. It's not a new problem, and in fact, it's a very old problem. We see it in the beginning of Nehemiah chapter eight. And if you could, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter eight. I'm gonna be reading the first 12 verses. Give you a minute to get there. Nehemiah chapter eight. And remember, uh, Nehemiah has already built the wall. The wall has been built around Jerusalem after God has called him from uh, his exile in a foreign land. He's come to Jerusalem and the, now Jerusalem stands pretty empty right now. But there is a wall around the city. God has, and it's been amazing because it's been done in a very short time. And so with that in mind, all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest, by the way, he's in the other book, the companion book to this named Ezra, kind of easy one to find. It's right next to Nehemiah. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. Now to be clear, that means everybody. Everybody who could possibly understand what the word of God looks like. Uh, one of the things that I actually really enjoy about preaching at this church, uh, there's always a bunch of younger people in the front row. And from time to time, if I'm decent, they'll take notes. <laughs> I love it when I see that. It means I said something valuable. But that's the way it works. Everybody came to hear the word of God. So this wasn't just the men. It wasn't just for the leaders. It wasn't just for, you know, the people who know or are really into their religion. It's for everybody, as it should be for us. On the first day of the seventh month, and he read it from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, about six hours. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform, meaning they've spent some time to get prepare for this. So he's standing on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Methaniah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. And Padiah, and Mishael, and Melchiah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And he opened it, and all the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed down their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Echab, Shabbatiah, 
Hadoya, Messiah, Kelatiah, I really should have practiced this beforehand, <laughs> Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. So it's not just that the law is being read. It's just like what I'm doing right here. I'm trying to explain to you what the word actually says. This is basically the way we do exegetical preaching generally. We tell you, we read the word, and we try to explain what it says. And that's what they were doing here. They helped to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So it's not just that, you know, they come, get up here and give ideas about what kinds of things are going on here. If I, as a preacher, and if Nehemiah, as, Ezra, as a reader of the word, had done his job well, you understand the word of God better after you leave, after you've heard this. So um, just for a minor note, if you want to say something nice to me after this sermon, don't just say, well, that really blessed me, Steve. That was great. Tell me how God taught you something new about his word through what I say. If that happens, that's amazing. That's actually me doing my job, as I should here. Now, here gets to the point of what I was talking about at the beginning. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For the, all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go on your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing. Ready for this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed the people, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy, and do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions, and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And I think that actually means all of the words that were declared to them, not just the things there, including the statement, you guys should be happy. So they understood why that is. That's gonna be important in a second. So I've got basically three big things I'm drawing from the text, and then I've got a couple of applications. So it should be hopefully not a long sermon today. Yeah. I get an amen for that one. That's, that's great. First of all, I want you to notice that for these people, and I think for any person who really knows God, the word of God is important to them. The word of God is important to them. I gave you a few points as to why that was. First of all, notice that at the beginning, when it says all the people gathered together as one man into the square before the water gate, it wasn't Nehemiah and Ezra drawing them together. It wasn't a plan by the leadership. It says all the people did this. And they, referring to the people, told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. So stop there. 
That meant that the people that were hearing this, the people who were really moved of God, the people who knew God, called on Ezra and Nehemiah to bring the word to them. They weren't ready to hear things that other people would come up with. They didn't want uh, the latest fad or the best rhetorical, uh, most rhetorically skilled person to make them feel better. They wanted the word of the Lord. I, I found that kind of convicting, I have to be honest, because that's not the way I usually am. But they sought after the word of God. They knew there was something valuable about it. We'll find out in a few minutes what that was and what God did through that. But first of all, recognize that the word of God is important to them. They make the decision to seek after it. Just as, by the way, when we find churches, we should be seeking after churches where people actually take the word of God seriously, where that's an important part of what we do, where the worship and the actions and the, uh, even the church governance and the choices that the church makes are bounded by what God has said, not merely what people say. That's important. Second of all, notice that they make preparation for this. They had built a wooden platform specifically so that Ezra could be standing above them to bring the word of God. Now, I don't know if you've looked in deserts very often. Do you know how common wood is in a desert? Answer, it's not. So they found wood to build this thing. They, they used their labor, they used their time, they used their resources to make sure that there was a way that they could be sure they were going to hear the word. Again, one of the lessons you, you can gain from Nehemiah, one of the overarching themes you see in Nehemiah is that we as a people of God don't just have to you know, be spiritual people as if the physical world doesn't matter. The physical things that we do help us to do the spiritual things that we need to do. Uh, this morning in Sunday school, Pastor Steve talked about the book of Acts where people needed to be fed. And so certain people had to be put in place to make sure that the people got the distribution of food so that other people could be ready to preach the word. And that's the way it should work. The word of God is important. So we put our physical desires, our needs in place so that we can hear the word of God and so that we can have a place where we can follow the word of God. Third, you can see that everybody who can understand is there. Not just, like I said, a few people who happen to be theology geeks. Not just a few people who happen to be smarter than everybody else. Not even the guys who have lots and lots of training. In fact, the guys who have lots and lots of training show what they do by being the people who explain to everybody else what the text means. I think that's brilliant because that means that they're servants. The people who stand in front of them and tell them about what the word of God says serve the rest of the congregation by telling them that. They use their minds and their abilities with words to be able to explain to people. But it's to everyone. And it's not just to the few people in the congregation. They're not just explaining it to the few people who can possibly understand it. They're telling it to everyone. <coughs> If the youngest person doesn't understand, they'll explain again. 
If the oldest person doesn't quite grasp the new lingo they've used, they'll think about the, the lingo that they should be using and change it so that the people will understand. The idea is to understand the word of God. And everyone who can understand is there. It's, it's very, in some ways, democratic and strange for people to see in the Old Testament because people have this idea that God is this patriarchal God who hates women and you know, just loves men and only wants men to hear the word of God. Obviously, that's not the case. The word of God is for everyone. Understanding the word of God is for everyone. That's what this is for. Then another thing that I found interesting and, and you see about the word of God, the word of God impels them to worship. Did you see that part where, there where it says, uh, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. So that is actually a part of worship, lifting your hands, and bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They worshiped. This wasn't a passive thing where, you know, it's just the addition of more information into their heads. There's something being changed here. There's something that's impelling them to act differently because of the fact that they know and understand the word. And they listen for hours. Now, I'm not going to preach for hours today. Uh, we, we're, we're not that good at doing that kind of thing. I, I, I probably could, and, but you know that would be a bad thing for all of us. But just think about it. They spent hours trying to just hear the word of God. They just wanted to understand it so much, they spent hours in it. And, and again, that convicted me because sometimes I have trouble spending 15 minutes a day in this. And they just took one day and spent like six hours. I'm going to just spend reading the word of God. And that doesn't mean that they're going to stop doing it the rest of the time. Just today we'll do six hours. Well, it's a long time. And of course, most importantly, as I said before, the word of God is explained. Um, there are religions that believe that, you know, uh, things that come down from God are kind of magic words. Like God, if you read the Bible or read something else and, and do this, you shouldn't change anything because they're magic words that you shouldn't, well, talk about. You know, they should never be, even be translated. If you're a Muslim, you'll know that you aren't supposed to translate the Quran into English or into any other language because it's written in God's language, Arabic. So the words are more important. But what is important for us as Christians and actually for the Jews before us, is that we understand the word of God because the value of the word of God comes in understanding it, in apprehending it, in being changed by it. It's not merely a surface kind of thing. The word of God is important, not just the words in the, in, on the page, but the words on the page are important because they tell us things about who God is. You remember in the Bible when Steve was talking, uh, well, well, you read some of the New Testament passages, and it talks about how uh, some, sometimes the Pharisees and the scribes believed that the word of God was uh, you know, important. They searched the word of God to get salvation because they think that the salvation is in the word of God. But the word of God points to Jesus. Well, similarly, the word of God points to God. And that's important. We need to be pointed to God. And that's why the word of God is important, because it points us to God. It makes our faith in God stronger. 
because we learn what, God, what kind of God he is. And we learn the value of God. And that gets us to the second point. Because the word of God brings responses. And this is kind of important. You see, if you understand who God is, if we understand that God is lifted up and valuable and holy and powerful and beautiful and more valuable than anything we could ask or imagine, as I said in the beginning, as we've said throughout this entire service, through all of our songs, you will see God as infinitely valuable. You'll see him as infinitely beautiful because he is that. But the second thing is, if you read the law of God, you'll recognize we don't measure up. I know I don't. It's one of the reasons I don't like reading the word of God sometimes. Because if you look at the word of God and you read it accurately and you can't shut off your brain enough to just gloss over parts, it's going to convict you of sin. It just is. Because God is holy and perfect and amazing and mighty and beautiful in all things, and I'm not. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you see something that's really, really beautiful, that's amazing, that's something that you want to be with, that you want to see, that you want to have in your life more than anything. And then to look at yourself and know, in myself, I can't have that. Have you had that experience? I have. And that's what the word of God is like. Sometimes, if you, we'll get to why that's an incorrect understanding in a few minutes, but the first response that most of us are going to have when we see the word of God rightly preached, rightly shown to us, is that God is amazing and we fall short, which is going to make you feel very bad, to put it mildly. It, it, it's why in most times when you see re revivals of religion, if you look through history and you read these books, and I really recommend you do, you'll see that people are cut to the heart, that things are changed in their hearts. They recognize what they need. And, I mean, you even see it in the Bible in the first time. You remember when Peter is talking to the people at, in Jerusalem on the day, on the day of Pentecost? And the people are cut to the quick. They're cut to the heart. They're changed. They, they recognize something. And they, 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 they cry. They beg. What must we do? There is this amazing God set before us. And we have sinned greatly. We can't possibly stand before this holy God because we see how amazing he is, how holy he is. And I can't stand before him in myself. What am I to do? And we see that, they, that that's the response they had. Verse 9. I'll just start in the middle here because it's not actually the way this is done. This is, this is going to be important for point three. But first of all, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Uh, uh, none of us are crying yet. 
um, which is, you know, okay, I'm, I'm not the most emotionally expressive person in the world, I don't know what I'd do with that. But let's face it, when you hear the word of God properly, when you see what God's word does, you can be moved to tears for your own sin, for your failure, for, and for his glory and how far short you fall. But that isn't the ultimate response of a believer to the word of God. That isn't what we should be start stopping in. Now we should go there. We should go through this position. It's one of those uh, weird things that you should go through this path to get to the joy. But don't stay here. We're not supposed to stay in the morning. And Nehemiah and Ezra and the people of Israel and the leaders of Israel knew this. You're not supposed to stay here. Your conviction of sin is not the end. And unfortunately, this is where I'm, I'm going to go off on my soapbox for a few minutes. I apologize. This is where we as Christians so often fail because we stand up in pulpits and I tell you all about what God calls us to be and to do and we're left, you know, weeping, yes, pastor, yes, leader, yes, elder, yes, whoever you're talking about. Oh, I'm so horrible, I'm terrible, and I, I need to repent and turn away from this. And I feel terrible, and, I, and I'll call you to the front of the room because you feel terrible, and you'll, you'll bow down and, into the cross, and then next week you'll go out and do it again, and you'll feel terrible next week, and I get to feel good because I can talk about you terrible sinners, and I don't have to worry about the fact that I'm a sinner and that I need to lie before God just as much as everybody else. Because we stay in this area. We don't walk through the morning for sin to where we're supposed to go. Because, and this is from Psalm chapter 19, verse 7, starting. Because the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Notice that, not killing the soul, not drawing down the soul. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You don't need to stay simple anymore. You can be wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Friends, the, the word of the Lord is, is going to convict us, but it's not designed to keep us there. There is something else involved here. It does teach us about God and give us a view of his goodness. It teaches us how short we fall before a holy God. It can lead us to despair in our, of our own ability. And if left to ourselves, that's rational. If we're left to ourselves, but we're not. Because the Lord brings joy to those who follow him. Wow, no amen to that. Because the Lord brings joy amen. to those who follow him. This is designed for your joy. It's designed to bring, and there's a very simple reason for this. Because in, in addition to seeing how God is holy and God is good and God is above us, it shows how God is gracious and God is merciful and he gives us opportunity to turn to him. And that's what's happening in Nehemiah here. 
You see, the people are mourning about how God has given them punishments. He's taken them away. He's destroyed their, their lands because they rebelled against him. Ultimate stupidity, rebel against God. And they're weeping because they think that they can't, they can't measure up to God, but they're missing the fact that they're standing in the rebuilt city of Jerusalem. There's a wall all around them that the Lord built in 50 days because the Lord was showing grace and mercy to them. And friends, you're in church today. You're hearing the word of God today. And, and I, like, I like this part. You're hearing that you can turn to God today. Your sin can end today. You don't have to wait until I do an altar call or until I even finish this sentence. Put your trust in God now. And you can. Because he's provided that, that way. You began a good work and you will carry it through to completion in the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. You may be sinners. I know I am. You may know the ways that you fall short of God. I know I do. But he is gracious and merciful. He calls you not just to see your sin, not just to think about sin, but to walk away from it. You see, repentance isn't just feeling bad about your sin. It's walking away from sin and towards God. I'm not, as a, as a person preaching and as a guy who does that for, for you know, my calling, my job isn't just to convict you of sin. That's actually not my job at all. That's the Spirit's job. My job is to preach to you that now is the day of the Lord's favor. Today you can turn to him and he will accept you. I have never met a sinner who turns in repentance to Jesus who, who he rejects. It doesn't happen. But don't stay in the grief. Walk to the God. See, and it's a possible thing that we do. It wasn't just in the time of Nehemiah. First Corinthians, Paul is saying the same thing to the people of, uh, to the believer, to the new first century believers that Nehemiah and Ezra had to say to the people of Nehemiah's time. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you. Though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. And, and repenting is another word that has a really bad rap these days. We imagine that repenting is about, you know, feeling terrible about yourself and going on CNN and, and apologizing to people and hopefully getting more votes in the future. <coughs> That's not repentance. Repentance is not feeling bad about yourself. Repentance is turning to Jesus. Repentance is when you walk away from this. We don't dwell on this anymore. We simply use it as another example of how God has been gloriously gracious to me and merciful to me. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Would you have no regrets this morning, brothers and sisters? 
Turn to Jesus. Trust in him. And that's what I mean by turning to Jesus. I don't mean some ma magic spell whereby you pray a certain group of words and then Jesus comes into your heart and you, and you can do this again next week. I mean, trust in the things he said. Trust in the things he's done. He died on the cross for your sins, including, because when he died, all your sins were future. He knew those and he died for them. There is nothing in your life right now that you can't walk away from in Christ because he's given you that opportunity. It's faith in the good God that is our strength. And that's why, that's, and why I'm saying that is because that, there's a, two ways you can read the Nehemiah passage there. Because Nehemiah in verse 9 says, And Nehemiah, who's the governor in Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For the, they, for the people wept as they heard the word of the law, the law. You can think that that's, you know, the old standard evangelical, you know, just put a smile on your face and pretend that horrible things haven't happened to you. Pretend that everything is fine. Uh, we call that lying. That itself would be a sin. So I don't think Nehemiah and Ezra are telling, you that, telling them to do that. I don't think they're telling, telling them to be happy, you know, as if it was just some kind of magic spell. Again, I use magic spell a little bit too often, but it's not just psych psychology. It's not just pop psychology trying to turn you into a happy person because you smile all the time, because all that does is drive you insane. Uh, I kind of know. Um, be quiet, for, and then it says down in verse 11 and 12, be quiet for this day is holy, do not be grieved. Sorry, verse 10. Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved. Why should you not be grieved? For the joy of the Lord is your strength. There are two ways that's true. First of all, be happy, seek after joy in the Lord because it is the joy of the Lord that is your strength. But secondly, if you know who the Lord is, if you rejoice in the Lord for the things that he's done for you, because you can only rejoice in the Lord if you trust him for, the, for doing the things that he says he's done, for saving you, for bringing you, buying you from the kingdom of darkness and bringing you into the kingdom of his glorious light. If you believe that, you have joy because you know what you've been saved from. You know how you've been saved. You trust him and you know that your salvation is solid because it's not you that's saved, it's him. I, I have an objective proof that my sin has been forgiven. It's a cross. It's an empty cross because the Lord, the Lord rose again on the third day. So let me put this into the land this. I have a couple of applications, two mainly. First of all, don't skip the word of God. One of the, look to God, look to God through his word. The reason I say that is because our society is very much towards feeling good most of the time. And we want to feel good in kind of the surface way without actually any of the negative things. 
uh, and I've joined a gym, I've learned that you don't get to the really good things until you go through the hard things. Well, it's even more so when it comes to the word of the Lord. You aren't going to have a good and solid understanding of God and a solid joy of the Lord unless you bring yourself before the word of the Lord, unless you let God change you through his word, unless you do the hard work of, yes, being convicted of sin through his word. That needs to happen. It's very easy for churches to imagine that the best way for me to fill the pews here and to make everybody happy would be to just preach the positive parts of the Bible. Uh, I grew up in a church where honestly, they literally don't read certain sections of the Bible because that might make people feel bad about themselves. Well, uh, I'm here to tell you that's silly and won't lead to an ultimate joy. If you want the ultimate joy, if you want the joy of the Lord that is your strength, if you want the joy of the Lord to be your strength, go through the hard work. Face yourself in God's eyes and repent of your sin. And then to do that, you're going to need to see it. But look to God through the word. See how holy and mighty and awesome he is. See how valuable he is above all things because that way the joy of the Lord will also be your strength because you rejoice in the Lord and you can walk away from sin because, well, it looks a lot less valuable than God does. The old hymn goes, you know, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full on his wonderful face and the things of earth will go strangely dim. Well, that's what happens. So look to God through his word. Second, and uh, I have to guess apologize to Steve because I am using an exclamation point for this. Rejoice in God! Seriously, one of the weirdest things about Christians is that we aren't happy most of the time. It is really, really weird. One of the things that I found very amazing when I became a full-on believer in Jesus, I actually started singing hymns. I used to be a standard good, you know, uh, nominal Christian, you know. Holy, holy, holy. You know, barely moving your lips while you sing. Not letting it go beyond... You're not only allowed to sing, you probably should. It's amazing. The Lord has saved us, amen? Our sin is gone, amen? And all of the things, all of the things that we've had in, the, in, the, in our lives before, the, the years that the locusts have eaten, he is redeeming now for his glory, amen? See, you're allowed to be excited about that. In fact, you probably should be excited about that. Because if you're not excited about that, honestly, you're kind of weird. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't, I shouldn't insult people in my congregation. But it, it is kind of weird that we're not happier more of the time. We should rejoice in God all the time, even when we're sad. I don't know if uh, some of you may know, my father died two weeks ago. It was a very sad time. It, it was a time that I felt very bad. But I'll tell you, I had a joy the whole time because he was the one who taught me about Jesus. He was the one who taught me what it was to kneel by, the, kneel by my bed and pray every night, which he always did until he could no longer kneel by his bed. Just to let you know how important that was to him. 
So I don't rejoice, uh, I don't mourn as those who have no hope. I mourn as those who have hope because I know God. And I know that regardless of whatever happens, what, whatever happens and whatever could go wrong in my life and in the lives of the people around me, that God is still good and he's still for me because I see it in his word. And he purchased it with his blood on the cross and the cross stands over all of history saying, he is risen. And he is the first fruits of a new creation of which I'm part. There's an underlying joy that should be part of us. We should rejoice in God. And finally, and this is one of the things that the people uh, that Ezra and Nehemiah told the people to do. <coughs> Help others rejoice in God. You can do that in a couple of ways. First of all, in the most simple way, tell them about God. I mean, whether or not you actually are agreeing with the people, whether or not you are you know, talking to Christians or non-Christians, you should tell other people about God. Uh, Christians always need to be reminded of the gospel, so let yourself be reminded of the gospel. Remind other people of the gospel all the time. Be kind of annoying about it. Just tell them how good God is all the time. But there's a second one. There's one that they pointed out here. <clears throat> Help them to rejoice in other ways too. The reason that we as believers should be willing to help one another in everything is because we need to be ready to help them rejoice in the Lord because that will help more rejoicing happen. Does your neighbor not have a couch? Give them a couch so that they can rejoice more in God. They don't have to worry about, the, about silly lacks of couches. If you don't have food, make sure they can feed them. In fact, not only feed them, invite them over to your house and have food with them. People do that for me, I really enjoy it. <laughs> but do that to other, for other people. Uh, make sure, and not just the minor stuff, the good stuff. Share with others. Bring people to know the joy of the Lord and do this for the sake of the Lord. Not for the sake of your own, uh, of you know, people liking you or enjoying you, but because hopefully by God's grace, they'll enjoy Jesus more. So yeah, we need to help others rejoice in God. Because in the end, that's what we're aiming for. You see, the gospel is about joy and joy more abundant. It is not about feeling bad about ourselves and being dour and self-righteous to others. Friends, eternal joy is offered you. Enjoy, eternal joy is offered us. Let's not just stay sitting here and waiting for, I don't know, people to love us. Let's seek after the joy of the Lord in doing what he calls us to do. And that namely is calling other people to rejoice in God. Let's pray. Lord God, you are good, you are merciful, and you are righteous. More than that, you're merciful, and you've redeemed us from a sinful people and made us followers of you. Pray now that as we go our separate ways, and as we uh, walk into the world, that you would be working in our hearts and in our minds to love you more and to call others to love you. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, Amen. Amen.